Good morning, everybody. If you're watching this, it's because I haven't yet received my uh, result from my COVID test from yesterday. Uh, or as I speak uh, this evening, I've just finished a round trip to Tail and Bend um, to try and reduce the waiting time for our tests. Uh, these are the times we live in and uh, we need to trust that uh, in all of this uh, mess uh, that the Father is sovereign over all things and he works all things together for good. Uh, if this time uh, for you is a stressful time, an anxious time, uh, then uh, trust in the Lord, obviously, uh, but reach out uh, to those here in the church community and if there's any way that uh, we can support and encourage uh, you through this time um, please let us know this is the second message in our series Behold I am making all things new and the theme of this morning's message is uh, the new covenant uh, taken from our readings that you've heard this morning Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 9 Last week we heard from the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. We saw how they prophesied to the Jews in exile in Babylon and through Isaiah the Lord promised that he was going to do a new thing which we saw from its fulfilment in Revelation 21 was the renewal of all things. Through Ezekiel the Lord spoke of the new birth by water and the spirit, the the washing away of our uncleanness caused by our sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell with and in us forever. This has been made a reality in Jesus, his death at the cross and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. And this new birth brings us into the flow of the Father's purpose for all things. It's the, the guarantee that we will be there, participants in the new heavens and earth, which is the fourth in this series. Well, Jeremiah also prophesied to the people of Judah around the time of the exile. He was a contemporary of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel was in Babylon with the exiles, but Jeremiah was back in Jerusalem with those who had been left behind. This remnant had become complacent, thinking it was those who were in, in exile who were under judgment and that the Lord had spared them back in Jerusalem because they were more righteous but Jeremiah warned the inhabitants of Jerusalem that judgment was coming upon them too because of their idolatry like Isaiah and Ezekiel he also spoke of a day when this judgment would come to an end now see the sovereignty of God in verse 28 it was he who had planned and overseen their destruction and in the same way he has planned and will oversee their restoration. Then in verses 29 to 30 we see a promise that the generation that returns won't be held accountable for the sins of their forebears. The exile is going to be adequate punishment for the sins of Israel. Yet it's also a warning that each person will still be personally responsible for their own sins. Just as no one will be able to say, I'm being punished for something my grandfather did, neither will they be able to say, just because I've been born into a righteous family, 
I myself am automatically safe under their covering. Before God, each of us stands morally accountable for our own actions. Each of us is called and commanded to respond in faith to the grace of God that's held out to us in the gospel of Jesus. We can't rely on anything our parents or other family members are or have done. As we saw last week, we can't gain entry into the kingdom of God by natural birth. We must be born of God. And that's the way it's always been. Even in the Old Testament, while being born an Israelite gave someone entry into the nation and the people of Israel, and in that sense they lived under the umbrella of the covenant that the Lord had made with Israel, that covenant and its promises along with the laws were about living in the land that had been promised and about being the people through whom the Lord would bring blessing to the nations. It wasn't about what we would call personal salvation. Every Israelite, regardless of their standing in the community of Israel, was ultimately still called to personal faith in the Lord and his promises, which pointed them forward to Jesus Without this faith, none of the benefits of their citizenship in Israel had any eternal benefits. We see this starkly expressed by Paul in Philippians 3, 4-9. He says, If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. These are all the things Paul had from being a Jew born under the old covenant, things that in themselves weren't bad, but which just couldn't make any difference in regard to his standing before God. But then he says... But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Every Israelite was called to be a recipient of this righteousness that's pursued by faith, not by works. You may have been born into a Christian family and that's a great blessing to have parents who teach and lead you in the way of Jesus. But for every one of us, there comes a time when we must ask, Who do I say Jesus is? Do I believe the gospel? Not because my parents have told me it's true, but because I know for myself that Jesus is real, that he died and rose again for me. I've got three adult children, all of whom have heard the same gospel, have all grown up in the same family, and each of them have responded in different ways to the gospel. I can't control how 
my children ultimately respond. They stand accountable before God for their own sins and for their own faith or lack thereof. This distinction will be made clear when the Lord makes the new covenant of which he speaks in verse 31. But before we talk about what will be new about this covenant, we need to see that this passage actually refers to all of the old covenants that we see in the Old Testament and it compares and contrasts them with the new covenant that will be established by Jesus. Let's remind ourselves of what a covenant actually is. We need to do this because we so easily confuse covenants with contracts. A contract is an agreement. It's built on conditions that any party can make null and void by not keeping their side of the deal. It's built on mistrust. And it's about what I can get from you in return for what you get from me. A covenant is a relationship and it's built on promises, promises that stand even when one of the parties doesn't keep their side. Covenant is built on trust and it's about what I will give to you regardless of whether or not you give anything to me. We so easily fall into thinking that our relationship with God is a contractual one in which he demands something from us and in turn he gives us his approval and we lose our assurance when we think that our standing before him is based on what we do rather than what he's already done for us in Jesus. But God doesn't relate contractually towards his people. Even when we fail on our side, his promises will stand firm because of his covenant faithfulness. This is the case with the four Old Testament covenants. And they're they're here to remind us that while humanity has never been faithful to God, he's never stopped being faithful to us. Now the obvious one is in verse 32 which speaks of the covenant made with Israel when they were rescued from Egypt. This is the covenant made through, uh, made at Mount Sinai through the giving of the law and it's known as the Mosaic Covenant. The key difference between this covenant and the new covenant is that those under the Mosaic Covenant and the new, broke, under the Mosaic Covenant they broke the covenant despite the fact that the Lord remained a faithful husband to them. see that in 32. Whereas those under the new covenant will keep it. Expressed in the words in verse 34, they shall all know me. And we'll speak more about this contrast in a moment. Then verse 35 and 36 speak of the fixed order of the sun by day and the moon and stars by night and the stirring of the sea. This is meant to make us think of Noah. When the Lord had caused the seas to cover the whole world in a flood and then caused them to recede and then made a covenant with Noah and with all of creation that not only would he not destroy the world with a flood but that the fixed order of 
Sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is known as the Noahic covenant and it applies to all of creation including the animals and plants and rocks and stars. Then verse 37 speaks of immeasurable heavens and the unexplorable foundations of the earth. This is meant to make us think of Abraham to whom the Lord said, look at the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them, Genesis 15.6. This was in the context of his promise to give Abraham countless descendants. Later he said Abraham's descendants would be as the sand that's on the seashore. Now in the ancient way of looking at the world, the sea was where one could go down to the foundations of the earth. And so if you were to try to count the sand at the sea, you'd have to explore the earth's foundations. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant and it applies to the nations of humanity. It's more detailed than the covenant with Noah as well as being more specific. It's about God's relationship with the creatures who have been made in his image. Then, verses 38 to 40, speak of the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt, much larger and more glorious than it was in the past. Now, this is meant to make us recall the promises of the Lord to David, which included establishing the throne of David forever and making the city of Jerusalem the throne of God. The Lord's, the place of the Lord's dwelling among his people through David's son Solomon who would build the temple on Mount Zion. This is known as the Davidic covenant and it applies to the sending of the Messiah, the promised offspring of Abraham, of Adam and of David who will accomplish salvation and restore humanity back to our place as rulers of creation under God. See how with each covenant it gets more and more detailed and more and more specific. Now these covenants stand as markers throughout the unfolding revelation of God's purposes in the Old Testament story. They're key milestones in which God reveals something more of his plan. But there's another covenant that we need to see and it's one that's behind every page of the Bible. It's not always obvious, but it's nevertheless there. This is a covenant that goes right back before creation. It's a covenant between the Father and the Son. Peter says, speaking of Christ, in 1 Peter 1, 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That word foreknown speaks of this covenantal relationship between the Father and the Son and the setting in place of the Father's plan to send the Son into the world to give his life to ransom sinners from 
the futility of sin and death. Then Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So we were chosen in him. This statement means that before he chose us, the Father first chose the Son, in the sense that he determined it would be through Jesus Christ, the Son, that we would be adopted into his family. This adoption into the Father's family will be through the marriage between the Son and the Church, his bride. As Ephesians 5, 25-27 shows us, it says, Christ loved the Church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the Church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now there are other passages we could look at, but these three help us get the idea. There's an eternal covenant between the Father and the Son. A covenant in which the Father creates the whole universe with the aim of providing a bride for his Son. A bride whom the Son will redeem and through redeeming will cause all creatures to give glory to the Father. This is really the one true covenant that lies behind everything in the Bible. From in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, to surely I'm coming soon, Revelation 22.20. This shapes how we then look at and understand the four Old Testament covenants. They're not really separate, standalone covenants that have no relation to each other, but they're different expressions of this one eternal covenant. We could picture it this way. The covenant between the Father and the Son is like a house that's filled with the glory of the triune God. Each of the Old Testament covenants is like a window into the house. And as the curtains on each of these windows is opened one by one, a bit more of the glory shines out and we get a growing insight into this eternal covenant. But then in the New Testament, with the inauguration of the new covenant in Jesus, it's like we've come to the large double doors to the house and in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, these doors are flung wide open to allow the fullness of the glory to shine out but it's more than that whereas the windows allowed us to look into the house from outside and see the glory now the doors are open and we're invited to walk into the inside of the house and not only see but participate in the glory we're invited in to make this house our home to know the father as our father to know the son as both our brother and our bridegroom and to know the full joy of the Holy Spirit as we have fellowship with the triune God. So we can see that each of these covenants didn't so much rescind the previous covenant as if 
the promises of the previous covenant no longer apply. Instead, each covenant built on the one before it, giving newer and deeper insight into this magnificent purpose of the Father. As I said last week, the idea of newness in the Bible isn't that in terms of age, but in terms of quality. It's taking what's already been created and set in place, but which is nevertheless a shadow. It's transient, it's mortal, and making it substantial and permanent and immortal. This is the newness of the new covenant. It takes the shadows of the old covenants and makes them solid realities. Now with this, obviously then, something of the previous covenants will pass away. Think of the Noahic covenant. In that covenant, the world as we know and experience it is to remain. However, the time will come when this whole physical creation will be refined as if with fire and we have yet to see whether the cycles of the sun and moon and stars and seasons will be the same as they are now. But nevertheless, it will be this creation still here but renewed. In the Abrahamic covenant, his descendants were given the promised land, the small strip of the fertile land in the Middle East. However, the time will come when all of creation will be the promised dwelling place of God with his people because the blessing promised to Abraham's offspring will extend to people of all nations. And in the covenant with Israel through Moses, they received the law written on tablets of stone. Now this law contained three main elements, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws and the moral law. The moral law, which is an expression of God's own character, will never pass away because it's how God himself operates. It's the law of God not only because it comes from God, but because it describes how God himself lives. Just like the law of gravity describes how objects attract one another, which is why we don't drift into space off the face of the earth. The law of gravity isn't a set of rules that we must follow, but something that explains the way things are. Well, so it is with the moral law of God. However, the the legal expression of that law, the written code that sets out the obligations and prescribes punishments, known as the letter of the law, well, that will no longer be needed because this is the law that verse 33 in Jeremiah 31 tells us will be within us, written on our hearts. Then the ceremonial laws... They were all to do with the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, the laws of clean and unclean we heard about last week. These have all been made obsolete because they all foreshadowed the coming of Jesus and now he's come, they're no longer needed. And then the civil laws. They were about how Israel was to operate as a nation and they've been transformed and reapplied in a new way to the church the new people of God who are no longer bound by geography or ethnicity or nationality. So this new covenant isn't like the old covenant 
not because it throws the old covenant in the bin or makes it to be bad. It's different because it takes the things that were required under the old covenant, which the people, as we saw, failed to do. They broke it. Things like loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and loving their neighbour as themselves. That's the summary of the whole moral law. They broke it. They couldn't do it. But under the new covenant, not only are those things doable, but they're actually assured. It's because the law is no longer located externally on a tablet of stone or a scroll of parchment, but written on our hearts. I hope that terminology reminds you uh, of a few months ago when we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And 3 verse, uh, 3 verse 6 says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, by this, we shouldn't think that the Spirit wasn't around under the old covenant. He was, but the people, to access the work of the Spirit, they had to come as it was mediated to them through the priests and through the written law. Now, under the new covenant, because Jesus, our great high priest, has once and for all dealt with our iniquity and our sin, verse 34, we no longer need external mediators to make sure we keep our distance from the holiness of God. And so he's sent the Spirit into our hearts and we have direct access to his ministry, his power and his enabling to obey and to do God's will, to obey the law written on our hearts. We see this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant in our Hebrews reading. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 describe the holy place in the temple and the high priest's duties on the Day of Atonement the only day of the year that anyone was allowed into the holy place. Then verse 8 tells us that this was all a picture to indicate that the way into the holy places wasn't available to the people. Verse 9 says that this is symbolic for this present age. And that's not talking about the age we're in today, but the old age of the old covenant that continued as long as the temple in Jerusalem was still standing when Hebrews was written Jews were still going into the temple to offer their sacrifices but none of them were able to go anywhere near or even to see the holy place in the middle of the temple they were still excluded from the holy presence of God but then verse 11 to 13 tells us the gospel that Jesus has gone into the real temple, the actual presence of the Father on the basis of his death on the cross. And so the physical temple has now been made obsolete and within a generation, as he predicted, it was done away with 
because through faith in Jesus, anyone can come and have free and full access to the Father. Verses 14 and 15 then are the pivotal verses. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant in which we're translated from dead works, the works of the written law, into a place of serving the living God as the Spirit is at work within us. See how this new covenant is actually the work of all three members of the Trinity. Jesus, the Son, is empowered by the Spirit to offer himself to God, the Father. All three are at work. The Father as the initiator of the plan from the beginning. The Son as the mediator who puts the Father's plan into action. And the Spirit who brings it all to completion. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus to go to the cross is the Spirit who dwells in us and then brings the work of the cross to bear in us. And so, Hebrews 10.19 tells us this astounding thing. We can have confidence to enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. Verse 22 tells us to draw near with two things, a true heart and full assurance of faith because Our hearts have been sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember last week, the new birth by water and the Spirit. Our uncleannesses have been washed away as the Spirit applied the atoning work of Jesus to our souls. And all the rules about clean and unclean are made obsolete because the source of our uncleanness, our own hearts, Well, they've been made new by having the law written on them. Not only that, verse 23 says we can now hold fast to a certain hope because the Father has demonstrated his unfailing faithfulness in keeping his promises. What does that then mean for how we live? Well, verse 24 tells us that we can now call one another, stir one another up to love and good works. See, under the old covenant, the written letter of the law, written in tablets of stone, it harangued us, it cajoled us because it demanded of us something that was impossible for our sinful hearts to do and so it could only condemn us and kill us. But under the new covenant, the same commands are no longer burdensome because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death as Paul says in Romans 8 his commands become a delight and we can be thankful when our brothers and sisters call us to love and good works because we have the power of the Holy Spirit to actually do them and find joy in doing them and finally verse 25 tells us the context in which we are to do this as we gather together to encourage one another in the light of the promised return of Jesus. The new covenant has formed a new people 
Jeremiah 31, 33 told us that God would write the law on our hearts and straight away he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This word people means specifically a gathered people. It's really the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word church. It's used of a tribe, an army or a flock. It means a collection of persons who find their identity by being part of the bigger whole, like limbs that make up a body. So we cannot be a people unless we gather as a people, unless we carry out our love and good works as a people in partnership and fellowship with one another. The new birth, as we saw last week, isn't just about individuals being made new persons, but about these new persons being formed into a new people. We stand as a church on the brink of a new year. The year ahead probably feels just as uncertain as the last two behind us. We have to live week by week to know whether we'll even be allowed in the short term to keep meeting together as verse 25 commands us. And most certainly our meetings will still not feel normal for some time yet. There may be a few more video sermons every now and then. But regardless of how 2022 plays out under the sovereign, wise and good hand of the Father, We need one another more so than when things were easy. But not only that, the world needs us to be the church. It's the church that's been given the command to go into the world and to make disciples. It's a task given not to separate individuals but to a people. Remember that word comfort from 2 Corinthians? We saw that it was the same word used of the Holy Spirit who stands us up on our feet and thrusts us into the Father's purposes for the kingdom. Well, this is the same word used here for encouraging one another. This is the spirit of the new covenant who's written God's law on our hearts and he is within us and he is the one uh, through whom we are able to spur one another on and to encourage one another as we wait for the return of Jesus. We're the new covenant people. We're a people who've been cleansed and sanctified by the blood of Christ. We have the law written on our hearts by the Spirit of God. Our consciences are made new and we have a great confidence that's been placed in our souls by the hope that we've been given by the Father. So let us be that people Let us live as that people. Let us love as that people. Well, hopefully I'll uh, get to see you again in person sometime soon. Uh, I'll let you know what happens with my COVID-19 test. I'm praying that uh, it will all come through as negative and everything will be fine. But let's uh, continue to love one another care for one another, uh, be mindful of one another in this time uh, and as we hold out uh, the word of grace and truth 
to this world in which we live. This is a world that needs this hope uh, more than ever. God bless you. See you soon.